Mr. Barista, I have a very important question for you. What? What is the proper kind of coffee to power through an, an online AP exam? Hmm. Well, today I had my Cafe Bustello from the Keurig. If I was going for an ideal option, it would be Grande Nitro Cold Brew from Starbucks because Nitro has the most caffeine. Now, I'm sure that a Nitro, an actual cold brew, would get you a five. But man, a Keurig, I mean, that's got to get you like a one or a two. I mean, uh, uh, no, I got way higher than that. I know I did. I, I hope you're right. I hope so. if, it, if, if your grade tanks, we're going to blame it on the Keurig. That's, 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 what, that's whose fault it is. It's the Keurig's fault. For dating purposes, today is Tuesday, May 12th. So I had my AP Calculus AB exam today. And I had a massive caffeine intake beforehand to make sure I was awake. I had espresso beans and I had drip coffee. And just so we don't get sued by the college board, we're not going to say anything else about this nope, AP exam. that's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, they know everything, man. The government's given them some crazy good privileges. <laughs> that sounds like a great resolution for the NSDA Resolutions Committee to consider for next <laughs> yeah. year. But uh, before we get there, we're going we're gonna to look at uh, nationals today. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? Uh, my name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor, debate coach, and dean of students for Thales Academy Rollsville. I'm here with Ethan Delves to discuss the uh, LD Nationals Resolution for 2020. Uh, Ethan, do you have the resolution in front of you? I do. I have Excellent. it right here. What's the res? The resolution is the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. That is quite the resolution. Yeah, it really is. And, and we actually did an episode before this, too, where we did a, a basic resolution analysis and talked about values. Um, so you can check that out. It should be only one one episode back, right? Right. We just yeah. uh, last week we dropped the episode with Adam Jacoby and then the one before that. So I think that's episode 50. Right. Jacoby so was episode back. 51. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we did the basic resolution analysis, but it went so long that we had to come back to do an arguments episode because we just we were basically arguing with each other the entire time about framing. We were, and lo and behold, uh, I I don't know we had a, we had somebody email us for a, a question about the resolution. So either she listened to our resolution or our resolution episode, or she just sent us a question without listening. I couldn't really tell from the question. I can't imagine anybody sitting through that whole argument that we had for it was at least twenty minutes on framing. Uh, currently we are at, I'm going to go look at our current numbers on that one. Uh, believe it or not, we have, uh, 77 people <laughs> have at least clicked on that 70. episode on Podbean and we're at up to 75 on YouTube. So we got almost 150 people have checked out that episode. Nice. But it's no, seriously though, it is important to get the framing down, um, before we talk about arguments. And I, I really don't think we're going to find, I don't think we're going to agree on framing for this one or we might but um because this question kind of made me think about it a little bit harder and there might be some things we didn't see before so i think first first we're just going to discuss basic framing of the resolution how do we approach this resolution um the the ld nationals nsda resolution and then we'll go into some arguments from both sides i think that sounds a good plan ethan walk us through the question that we got and uh, at least your initial thoughts and i'll chime in after that okay this question comes from arizona and she asked, what opinions do you, ha- do you all have on the burdens of AF and NAG? For example, would the AF need to advocate for a policy change to solve intergenerational wealth transfer, or would it just be a truth-testing burden? How could you use each one strategically? What do you think? 
Well, I, I think it's a great question. I think it really is the key question that debaters need to figure out. As you said a moment ago, we've got to determine the framing before we can get to the arguments. Because the, the framing and the burdens are going to be everything in this resolution. So when I look at the resolution, and of course, I'm a very traditional debate coach. I like my resolution. I, I'm not looking for ways to get outside the resolution. <coughs> I think the the strength of the word antithetical means that AF does, in fact, have a burden to advocate for a total systemic change. So I would say, and again, uh, the, the question asks for our opinion, so that's all this is. I'm sure there's other views out there, but I would say, yes, AF does have a burden to advocate for the complete change of intergenerational accumulation of wealth. So in the arguments I want to go over in a few moments, I think AF needs to basically destroy capitalism and private property and go all in on using the current generation's accumulation of wealth to create a social safety net for the next generation. What do you think? Okay. I think, so first of all, this is, it's, it's all about the judge that you get, right? When you walk into a round. Always. I can see... So many judges being completely okay with that. And this is an extremely broad resolution, which makes sense. It's a nationals resolution, right? So we want we want that breadth. We want different approaches. So it makes sense. Um, again, the resolution reads, the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. I can see plenty of judges being completely fine with your approach. But again, in my opinion, again, just my opinion, we're just giving opinions here. <laughs> the, uh, the resolution is an, is an objective statement. The intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. The affirmative's burden is to agree with the resolution. And that's just affirming an objective statement. But the word truth testing was interesting because the first time I ever heard about truth testing was at Harvard. And like you said, Crawford was explaining it to us. What I got from that is that, and um, for those who, for, who weren't at Harvard, the resolution was the nuclear arsenals one for LD. There was a moral imperative in that resolution. That moral imperative was ought. And when you have a moral imperative, but you're truth testing the resolution, to my understanding, it's more of, is this objective statement true or false? And then it goes into an entire off-case sort of debate with truth testing. It's an off-case sort of um, round direction. This resolution comes in the form of an objective statement. So I don't, I don't know necessarily if simply affirming the resolution would be considered a truth testing approach. Um, and even if you decided not to go with a plan or, or anything like that on affirmative, I literally think the affirmative's only job in this resolution is to affirm that the interge intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithet antithetical to democracy. Now, what, what does it mean to affirm, I guess you could say, in that sense? The affirmative is arguing for the presence of an antithesis to democracy, is the way I see it. It's the presence or absence of something. Just as in the LD resolution for nuclear arsenals, you're arguing for the presence or absence of a moral imperative. That's the way I usually tend to see the affirmative. Do I think you could use a plan or a unique strategy on the affirmative with certain judges or even a lot of judges? I really, I definitely think you do or you could. But for a basic approach for the affirm affirmative side of the resolution, I truly think you're literally just saying, does an antithesis to, to democracy, that antithesis being the intergenerational accumulation of wealth, exist? And like, is that antithetical to democracy? You're answering that question. And that's the main question that I see for the round. Now, oddly enough, uh, maybe I'm just seeing this because we just finished reading C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. I think we have the exact, <coughs> Lewis's exact framework of a proposition of fact versus a proposition of fact and a proposition of value going on in our distinction. Because I don't disagree with you there. I think that, I think I, I see what you're seeing there, but I think that the existence of that antith antithesis to democracy 
then necessitates a change. And so I think a strong case is going to have really those two components. It's going to begin by showing here's why uh, uh, here's why the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. And since we affirm democracy, uh, I have yet to meet the uh, secret cabal of monarchist debaters. If they're out yeah. there, please do write us in. I'd love to know where the monarchists in the debate world are. So far, every debater I've met at least has some sort of tacit or verbal affirmation of democracy. So if we can say, this is opposed to democracy, we affirm democracy, therefore we need a change. And I see that as a pretty strong case structure to go into it from. And I and think that's implied by the resolution. It is LD. So either way, you're going to need a value, Right. And if you're the resolution itself is the proposition of fact. And once you have a proposition of fact and a proposition of value, it's supposed to move you towards action, right? That, that was C.S. Lewis's whole thing. We got into that in a seminar one time. But I think you can value democracy. You could say, I value democracy, and I see this as an antithesis. But again, the resolution is asking you to, to prove, is this antithetical? It's not asking for a system change. And, it's, and the negative can simply prove that it's not antithetical. It's like, if you have a democracy and you have intergenerational accumulation of wealth, it's literally asking the question of what does it look like? And it obviously to anyone listening to this episode, we're lost on this. Both of us have a very bare bones, if not any understanding of what truth testing is. And we, we can't really agree on the framework here. I think it's just an objective statement that you're affirming or negating. Josh sees a lot of potential for going in different directions with, with something else. We're just going to talk about arguments. And I, I think so. Please email us with some more opinions on this. We have, if we have to make another episode, we will. Say, we, I'm not we, just going to make this episode the second half of the last one, except twice as long. We, we just, in the last five minutes, we did kind of restate about 45 minutes of our previous episode. So, yeah. Um, all right. <clears throat> well, I'll take point on this one and tell you what I'm seeing on AF and then uh, jump in and tell me what you think okay. of that. Now, if I was writing this uh, case for this resolution, uh, I would begin on the affirmative by thinking and researching about um, <laughs> two main concepts. First, the concept of privilege, and then secondly, the way that the contemporary economy trades on the work of past generations. So I want to kind of frame this argument in terms of looking at the ways that a our current American system of capitalism is not truly fair. So my initial implicit value is really fairness of some sort, and I'm going to frame my arguments to show that what we have, instead of a truly fair and equitable economic system, is really a system of hierarchy where there are those who are privileged because they're born into wealthy families, and there are those who are not privileged, and they are born into less uh, advantageous families. And they did nothing on their own. Instead, they begin life with a huge boost that others simply don't have. From there, um, I'm probably going to set up three contentions. Um, contention one, I would argue that uh, wealth creates inherent hierarchy within society. And uh, so and I would this is where I would want to look at democracy as being at its core. Democracy is all about equal opportunity, in which case, if we were truly to be democratic, every generation begins at the should begin at the same point to build wealth. And then that requires all of the wealth that's accumulated over a lifetime to disappear so that the next generation begins at an even playing field. 
Um, secondly, I would then bring in, this is where I would actually bring privilege in to the argument. I would say, look, what we currently have are <coughs> people who are inherently privileged because of the wealth that their previous families have generated. Now, my second contention there would be to go and I would want to go look, go, I'd be a little historical, but there's going to be a lot more, uh, critical race theory and critical race application to economics in this one where I would basically, I would want a slavery argument coming up next, where I would want to look at, and I'm confident the data exists. I don't have a source for this. I'm pretty sure it's out there, though. I would want to look at how many families in the United States ultimately track back the family wealth to the former owning of slaves and be able to assert that not only do we have this hierarchy in what should be a flattened democratic society, we also have the economic privileging of some over the unjust enslavement of others. Um, <clears throat> that argument did not used to uh, hit me terribly hard until this past summer, uh, back when we could travel once upon a time. Uh, but uh, my wife and I went on a trip down to Charleston, South Carolina, and I was absolutely amazed... Uh, if you go down to downtown historic Charleston, the buildings are made of stone and marble. Uh, literally in the architecture, you can see the wealth that this city had. And we did one of those historic tours of Charleston. And a tour guide explained that Charleston was the biggest port for bringing slaves into the United States and selling them there. So for about 300 years, Charleston's primary source of wealth was the sale of other human beings. And you can still, to this day, see that in the in the fam the old South families of Charleston, their wealth is built on that those foundations. Now, my last piece then that I would want to look at in framing the constructive, because all of this is around the idea of democ a democratic society should be essentially fair and just, and we should have equal opportunity, and we don't in the status quo. Uh, I would want to go back to uh, a movement from a couple years, a few years ago now, uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement, and bring in some of their rhetoric. Where uh, the math does not really line up, but they coined the phrase "the one percenters" and framed American society as being really a society of ninety-nine percent who all exist below a certain wealth threshold, and then the one percent who own uh, something like sixty or seventy percent of the wealth in the United States. And all of that would then argue, uh, I would use all of that to then say, this is inherently unjust and we need a change. And I've got suggestions as to what that change should be here in a moment. But Ethan, what do you make of that as, as an argument set up? I think that's a good argument set up. And I was waiting for that last part too, the, the change that you were advocating for. Because I think if you keep the contentions as is, that fall, falls under the view that I thought the resolution should go under. And I'd be interested to understand why you think the change part is necessary. Um, but for the arguments themselves, I think the slavery one is a great idea. And I saw that you were working primarily with the first half of the resolution there. So I want to get to the second half, antithetical democracy. What is the working definition of democracy that you're using for that, for that case? Like just a general, yeah. so I can understand. Uh, really on AF, I'm working with this as democracy as straight equal, uh, straight equality. There should straight be equality. straight equality yeah. in terms of economics. Where so this is not like a political sort of like voting system that comes first to mind for a lot of people. Not, not is, really. Is equal opportunity. Yeah, equal okay. opportunity. This is really kind of a the way we set up society. It's it's sort of a I think last episode we looked at five different definitions of democracy. 
this would be that last one of looking at right. all people have equal have an equality of station in society. And it's not complete even what I'm advocating is not in on the the AF framework is not really a completely <coughs> flattened perspective, but rather that everybody begins at the exact same position. So the change that I would be that I would see as kind of being the second component of this, because I think that makes a solid framework for the first bit. Here's the injustice. So what do we do about it? Uh, this is where I would really bring in a lot of um, Bernie Sanders kind of uh, democratic socialism type programs, because the problem with all of those programs is that they are hideously expensive. And so the way we fund those hideously expensive programs is by a 100% inheritance tax. So what that means then is that as soon as any property holder dies or anybody with assets dies, their assets are <coughs> taken by the state. And what the state then uses those for is to create an incredibly intricate network of social safety. So now we can fund universal health care. Now we can fund universal education as high as people want it. Now we can fund government jobs when people can't get employment and so on. We can have all of those pieces and that the I, this would be a complete revolution of society such that uh, it's not about taking risks and making more money so that you move your family up in the world. We'll get to that on Neg. Uh, mm -hmm. In the AF world, <laughs> this is instead all about uh, this is all about you, everybody at, uh, and I'm sure this could be worked out. In, I'm sure a thousand different ways. Right. Yeah. But at at age 18, everybody is done with mandatory schooling. Uh, maybe you're given five thousand dollars from the government, and you are no longer in a family house, and you now have to make your own way or something. Everybody starts at the exact same position, and it's what you can make of your life. You don't get to start from a, uh, a Manhattan brownstone. You don't get to start from a trailer park. Everybody starts from an equal playing field, and that's that it would, would be a picture of true democratic equality. Yeah, and I want to push on that 18-year-old that thing, too, because you, you sort of answered a question that I was going to bring up. Intergenerational doesn't have to be when someone dies and their wealth is about to move on to the next generation, because I'm Generation Z, right? And I, I'm a, I think my mom is... X something, right? Something like Maybe? that. Anyway, probably. She's, yeah, a different, she's, a older she's not the am, same yeah. generation that I'm in, right? Everything that I have is an accumulation of wealth from my previous generation, which means that me having, it, it's like you've completely separated the parenthood idea. Me having this desk, this microphone, this phone in my hand that I'm using to look up the definition of antithetical is an, is an intergenerational accumulation of wealth. Now, granted, that's not antithetical to me, to democracy. That's, that's, necessary for me to well this phone isn't necessary for, for my life but like the basics are essential for me to live right so i i think the key here is the word antithetical and the definite the definition i have just working with like the one the first one that comes up on apple or like i typed it into safari it came up it says directly opposed to or contrasted mutually incompatible so if you put that into the resolution which says the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy antithetical does not mean contrary to the idea of because you think antithetical the there's a thesis right like you're talking about the idea of democracy and anti of the thesis of democracy that that's not what this is saying this is saying mutually incompatible so we can't have both the interge intergenerational accumulation of wealth and a true democracy and i think the severity with which you define democracy is what defines the realm because mm -hmm. you can have this is not saying 
that you can't have, or you in this resolution, you could have some accumulation of wealth and have democracy, as long as they're not mutually exclusive, is what this is saying. So there's a lot of lines to be drawn and lines to be crossed here, is what's going through my head. Um, so I would like to hear this turn that you have coming at the end of the case. What, what exactly is the solution that you're advocating for on affirmative? Oh, I mean, that, that was it. The solution what, I'm advocating for is a total is revolution. Yeah, and, okay. I, I'm, I'm, I, I think AF needs to basically, um, you need to embrace, I mean, goodness, this is, I mean, really, AF, if you reject the intergenerational transfer of wealth, you need to advocate for some form of socialism or communism in terms of wealth. Uh, because okay. those are, I, I don't see any other options. And and what in the resolution says that you need to advocate for that? Um, well, I mean, the, the, if, if intergenerational transfer of wealth is antithetical. Now you were drawing a distinction that I'm having trouble seeing because okay. you were trying to say that, I mean, I, I, my understanding of that, everything you just said is that the inter, what this resolution is doing, the intergenerational transfer of wealth and democracy are contradictory terms. They cannot both yes. exist at the same time. Yes. Okay. In which case, uh, if we want, if we value democracy, we have to get rid of the intergenerational transfer of wealth. Well, what do we do no, with we're, all we're the just, wealth? We're just stating that it's antithetical. No. You have to get rid of it. You're no, making an observation. No. Yeah. No. But you can't just again, recognize a contradiction the and then says. do nothing about it. Well, yes, you can, because you're just answering a yes or no question. It, well, it's, it's not. not. It's a I, like, Ethan, yeah. I'm just telling you, you can't go and run that case. You can't go. Plenty to, of people are going to run it, go and run that case. Uh, we'll find out. I'll, I'll, if any of the rounds are public or streamed to YouTube, I, I plan on watching a couple of them. It literally is not that clear cut. We literally got emailed a question between these two different views on the resolution. I'm just telling and, you, like, I, I cannot fathom anybody just running this. Aha, the resolution. Yes. I'm going to sit down now. Please refute. No it's called public forum. <laughs> that's that. That's not going to fly. Okay. okay. Give me, give me what you've got on neg because pretty much like the two hours of content we have on this resolution is all af and framing. Okay. So I want to hear some negative stuff. All right. Uh, okay. So neg, I, I am, this is probably the strongest argument I've found myself making in recent years. Um, so I would begin neg from the get go uh, with something like this statement, um, AF requires the destruction of property rights and attacks the natural patterns of humanity. So what I'm getting at in this is that for the entirety of human history, we have had plenty of, we've had a pattern of people working to accumulate wealth, not simply for personal advancement, but really to leave a legacy for their children. That economic tie that binds families together is crucial for maintaining uh, the family dynamic. Uh, so what the affirmative world is calling for is literally dissolving the very thing that holds families together. I know we talked about this uh, a little bit last time, uh, but I, there is a great argument to be made to say that for children to be raised uh, as healthy, productive, well-rounded citizens of a future society, they are best raised in families. Uh, there are all kinds of other situations, but the sociological data is crystal clear on this point. Like It is an incontrovertible uh, finding across dozens of different studies that when children grow up in a family, they are generally better off than people who do not grow up in a family. 
we live in a time where divorce is much easier to come by than in pre than it is in previous generations. Property rights are really one of the only things left in our legal code and in social practice that actually bind families together. So because of that, because humans are creatures who are naturally born in families, and those families are units that are bound together by the desire of parents to make their children have, a, have access to a better life than they themselves did, this resolution is actually calling for going against some version of human nature. So... Uh, I think Neg's best argument here is to go all in on property rights as actually key to what it means to be human. That we don't work just for our own self-interest. We actually work for the better in order to leave a legacy for those who come after us. Now, I would then, after that, I would move to uh, argue that the affirmative position confuses a political category with an economic category. <laughs> Mm, there it is. I was waiting for that. Yep. Okay, explain. Uh, so I would argue that on NEG, I think it's really clear, Really, there's a really strong argument that a democracy is first and foremost a form of government where everyone has an equal standing before the law and everyone yes. has an yeah. equal right to vote. And that the, was one of those first definitions that we talked about, right? Exactly. So the affirmative using the later one. I got it. Okay. Yep. Makes sense. And that... Neg needs to fight tooth and nail for that as the definition of democracy, because uh, if I can get back to the resolution, uh, the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. I think the most natural reading of this resolution is to take democracy as a form of government in which everyone has the ability to vote. And even if there is some evidence of captured democracy where the rich people have the ability to sway the vote, the rich people cannot outnumber the vast number of poor people. So mm. poor people have the ability to mass and go to the vote. Uh, I think you look to the uh, 2016 election with the surprise where all of America's elites expected Hillary Clinton to win hands down. The vast masses of poor Americans in the Midwest who were tired of elite Ivy League people on the coast uh, making their decisions, they voted for President Trump. It's a great piece of evidence for democracy going against the wealthy elites. So the fact that I, I think we read democracy there as a form of government, in which case, the if that is the if you can win that definitional battle, then the negatives arguments about economic inequality are going to be meaningless. That shreds right. them all. It removes the ground for them. Um, so the definition of democracy is everything. Um, mm. So that's really where I would start on neg. Um, okay. I found some data from a couple of these um, sources I read last week about. Um, access to power, uh, income. Uh, but the, a lot of the stuff I was reading, it is not a foregone conclusion. It is not necessarily true that just because you're rich, you are more powerful. That's not, or just because you're poor, you lack access to organizations or institutions. In essence, I think there's a great argument to be made here that a democracy is all about equality of opportunity in the sense that everyone can rise. There's nothing keeping anybody down in society. There's nothing institutionally preventing people from rising up in, in economic status over time. 
but the affirmative world would destroy that very ability by removing the ability of a family to pass on those building blocks that they've accumulated so that the next generation is able to start from a slightly higher position. So there's so many interesting things to unpack there, really. So, and I think before I forget it, I want to start with that equality of opportunity idea because it's it's it was so close to being under the radar for me, but I think I've thought of, I've thought of something. Um, assuming the definition of democracy stays with the more political definition and not the economic one, the affirmative world advocates for equality of opportunity because remember with the case, the example case you gave. It was all about equality of opportunity, right? Like your example, we're all starting with $5,000 at 18, have fun with it. And the negative is also arguing for equality of opportunity in the sense that everybody starts from the same place. So where's the difference? It's really that, in, or at least where I think the difference is, you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, is that the affirmative is arguing for equality of opportunity for the purpose of achieving equality of outcome. And we're attempting to, to morph equality of opportunity in a certain way so that the outcome will look the same. Because imagine... Once that 18-year-old spends their 5000 in your example and moves up in society, what happens? We, we even the outcome by re- redistribution or, what, or whatever means the affirmative plan was. So really, the affirmative is arguing for equality of outcome. It's just using equality of opportunity to get there. The negative side is the entire property rights ordeal you were talking about before. We just have the ability for everyone to rise. That concept is the equality of opportunity there. Now, I was disagreeing with you all the way up until you change the definition of democracy because I was like and then I was like yes if the negative team defines democracy in some sort of economic terms you're done and and I I know my mind will probably change about this when some genius debater comes up with an amazing argument where the negative can turn it somehow we always learn more about the resolution once we actually debate it a million times so true. I don't even know if I'll be debating this one so this is going to change but at a surface level I can see the affirmative has to go all in on the economic definition and equality of opportunity, which would eventually end up in some sort of outcome equality. But I completely agree with what you were saying. Now that we've defined democracy in terms of ability to rise and political representation or what have you, that makes a lot more sense on negative. And and when I thought at first you were operating under the other definition, I was like, no, 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 no. Because I was saying, look, from what you were saying before, you were you were basically getting at the idea that this hierarchical nature is is part of what it means to be human, right? Which does not prove that the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is not antithetical to democracy. So at first, I saw a gap in the negative burden there because basically the affirmative is like, yeah, people accumulate wealth. That's ant- antithetical to democracy. And what I was hearing from you on Meg was... Yes, they do. I agree with you, affirmative. But we need it. We need that for property rights, a structured family, whole list, right? So I heard you agreeing with the affirmative, but saying it's necessary, um, which kind of reminds me of the whole truth testing thing, like where, where Crawford was explaining in the for the nuclear arsenals resolution. It, of course, it would be ideal if everyone got rid of their nuclear weapons. Is what the what the example that was given, I believe. But the negative is like we can't do it. It seems to be the nature of, of how debate is anyways. And again, I need to get a more solid definition of truth testing down because I'm by no means do I understand it perfectly. But I guess the most careful thing you need to do on NEG is don't agree with the affirmative, but say it's necessary. Don't agree with the affirmative and say, yeah, the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to, democ- to democracy because you've given them the resolution, the objective statement. No matter what you value on the other side, property rights, well-structured family, equal opportunity in the sense that we can all rise – 
you've still agreed with the affirmative. You're just saying that the hierarchical nature is a good thing. That's not what we're arguing here. That would be a resolution for an ought or a moral imperative, mm. which is why this resolution is so confusing. Instead, this is an objective statement. Does the antithesis exist in this way or does it not? The affirmative says yes. If you're defining democracy as an economic in economic terms, equality of opportunity, then uh, it, of course it's antithetical to democracy because of it in unjust power dynamic, etc. If the negative defines it under more political terms, everyone has the opportunity to rise. This is what representation actually looks like. This connection and power of, er, between power and economics isn't as sound as you would first articulate that it is. Then I can see the the negative being like no. It's not antithetical instead of, no, it is antithetical, but that's bad, or, but that's good. Does that make sense? I think I'm tracking with you, and I, I, I like you brought up a lot of uh, nuances and distinctions there. One thing I would add on Neg uh, is that if Neg can win this discussion about the democratic form of government, the Neg has every opportunity to then look at what actually will happen in the affirmative world and look at where the power is going in the affirmative framework. Because if AF is running anything like I just suggested a moment ago, where uh, somehow the government gets all the money through a 100% inheritance tax, or not just money, assets of all, of all kinds, well, what we actually have is the government is now going to own the means of production, which is the textbook definition of socialism, which is not democratic. Because a democratic form of government, the power rests in the hands of the people. In which case, uh, that's going to be back in the status quo. In the status mm -hmm. quo, uh, whether you are rich or poor doesn't really matter. If you're over 18 and a citizen of these United States, you can vote. And you are represented in our, uh, in our form of government. So I think it's really, there, there's, Neg needs to be on the lookout for AF for when AF begins sliding away from the power is in the hands of the people and instead concentrating power in the hands of the state. At the point when the state is gaining a power, we're no longer looking at a democracy in the same sense that we have in the status quo. Because in the status quo, we have power diffused from the federal level to the state level to the local level to the individual level all of which is power going out to the people. And when we draw that back in by absorbing all of the wealth from every deceased generation, then we really are going to see a massive shift in governance, where now it's we're looking at some form of oligarchy, where those who are in power, those few in power, are the ones who will be making this whole system work. I'm guessing we're going to have to be talking about a pure democracy here, right? It's going to be difficult to do plain or like purely historical examples here, I feel like, because if someone comes out and says that the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical, as in mutually incompatible with democracy, and we have maybe 10 democracies we're using as examples that are decently functioning democracies, and they have some level of intergenerational accumulation of wealth, there's going to be a problem for whoever's saying it's incompatible. I think the affirmative is going to be reaching for that ideal version of democracy. What does a pure, true democracy look like? Because and, and that would mean the affirmative would probably have to deny any hard examples that the negative asks about. Because there are plenty of functioning governments you could label as a democracy that have this sort of wealth accumulation that, that could be compatible with that sort of wealth accumulation. So I'm thinking affirmative is, again, just as affirmative always is, going to be going with the idealistic version of democracy. But I want to correct something that we were saying earlier, too. Because on the negative, we are looking at democracy in more of a political sense. But I don't think the economics, we're leaving all the economics to the affirmative either. 
like I, I can imagine the negative saying like affirmative, give me a piece of the economics part because I see it. We, we're talking about equality of opportunity. That applies to economics too, with everyone's ability to rise economically. So do we have a government system or can it, it, does a pure democracy provide a government system that allows people the equal opportunity to rise? And how unequal can we get before we get to antithetical? Because again, antithetical is a polarized word, right? It's, it's either yes or no. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's just a polarizing word. So on affirmative, we're trying to prove a polar opposite. On negative, if we have any any sort of gray area in the middle, that's where negative operates, and that's where negative is going to be most effective. And that tends to be how it is with, with resolutions like this, too. I'm not sure. I guess I could try to use the example of the nuclear arsenals one, where we ought to eliminate all nuclear arsenals, right? It's an absolute. We're trying to get rid of all of them. Negative could get rid of some. The negative could keep all of them. The negative could shift around whatever they want there. That's where counterplants come from, right? But the affirmative is arguing for the absolute. So, and the word antithetical just makes it that more apparent. One last thought on neg. Uh, and then honestly, I think we probably ought to shift down to uh, suggestions for people to go research and probably wrap this thing up. Um, uh, it's worth noting that uh, uh, one Washington Post article I found uh, suggests that taxes on wealth and income may limit growth. Also, globalization and capital mobility may make it impossible to heavily tax wealth and high income. Um, it would be worth the negative's effort to be ready to unpack how every time this has happened in terms of government, e either socialistic states nationalizing industries or governments taking large sections of money from the private economy into the public economy, every time that happens, you don't you see a contraction of economic growth. So instead of this leading to continued economic growth, you actually see uh, it, it becomes much more static. This instead of a in a negative world where you where free market capitalism is much more at home, you can have a uh, sort of the idea of a rising tide lifts all boats. As that one percent is getting really wealthy, they're bringing up the other ninety nine percent. With the classic example of. Uh, uh, you going to talk about Amazon? No, no, no. I was talking about cell phones because 30, I remember 25 years ago. No, my goodness. Yeah. 25 years ago, um, my dad's work got him the first car phone and it was car phone. car phone. It literally, it was this giant brick. It sat in between the two front seats in our van and it had like a charging block in the van. And this was like an $800 piece of equipment that only businesses at that point would afford. Wow. Well, and it was a business expense kind of thing. Well, today, uh, jump forward 25 years, and everybody has a cell phone. Uh, now, the, the phones aren't necessarily cheaper. Um, if I actually paid for my iPhone 10 completely out of pocket, it's like what? Uh, it's like almost a thousand bucks now. Yeah. But there's all these different ways to pay for it that kind of trickle down and spread out the cost because companies have figured out how to make it cheaper. I raised that because it's a uh, I got this from uh, the Acton Institute. They, they kind of shelled this argument out. When new inventions come out, usually they're really expensive and only the super wealthy can afford them. But over time, companies then do a lot of R&D and they figure out how to sell that to the masses and drop their costs a lot. And so that a tiny profit across masses leads to huge profit for the company, which means that eventually 
all of those luxuries that used to be only available to the super wealthy, those actually are brought down low throughout society. So the whole argument about, okay, well, the 1% are super wealthy and the rest of us, 99%, we're just stuck here. We need a, we need a handout. That's ignoring the way that free market capitalism actually works. And if you then destroy the whole system of property rights that enables this, you really are removing the ability of an economy to continue to grow. The investment cycle where you have high risk tied to high reward, that's gone in this whole system. Because why am I going to really risk that much money when I'm going to die and all of my money is going to go to the government? That's not going to lead me to fund some new business as a venture capitalist or anything like that. So I think Neg also, not only does Neg have strong legal and philosophical arguments, Neg has great practical economics arguments as well. Yeah, and I think I think I understand the general principle of the example that you gave. I don't want to go too far from the whole intergenerational part, um, but I think the, the free market works well, or that, that example that you gave works well. And I guess my... My take on what, like, what I would do if I were going to start making a case for this is understand all of the different definitions of democracy and know which one you're going to to fight for. Like, know which would know which hill to die on. I guess you could say, and because um, that's really what it's going to come down to. If affirmative can't snag the economic leaning definition, and they're in trouble because their argument's all about wealth and how it moves through the generations. And if negative can't snag the uh, the political leaning definition plus the whole equality of opportunity as far as um, the ability to move up goes, um, then negative is in trouble. So there's going to be some definitions fighting here. And two important things to note, one more important, one less important that I was just reminded of again that might be worth looking into or at least prepping some blocks against maybe. The first one is the word antithetical. And where are you going to draw the line as the the affirmative side? Or, and how are you going to refute on the negative side? How, how polar opposite are intergenerational accumulation of wealth and democracy to the point where you can affirm, yes, this is antithetical? Or are you going to define antithetical as something else? Because again, it is an absolute word, so I don't really understand how far from that absolute you could go, if that makes sense. But it's something to think, something to think about. Affirmative stuck with an absolute, and negative is stuck with a lot of ground to refute. So if affirmative can't prove that absolute, again, negative is going to take the round. That's where all that debate theory rhetoric comes in where it's harder to affirm because affirmative, we're, we want to stick with the status quo, right? That's that's where all that literature comes from. Second, this is just an interesting thing that came up earlier that I feel like didn't get enough, um, we didn't talk about enough, was intergenerational accumulation of wealth, again, is not limited to when the generation holding the wealth passes away and then has to give the wealth to the next generation. Um, it's worth thinking about what happens when one generation is giving wealth like a parent to a kid. They're two different generations, but it's still an accumulation of wealth going downwards, um, just as it would be if a grandfather passed away and and his son in inherited his wealth or his daughter inherited his wealth. So it's worth thinking about this isn't necessarily a, a death, accumulation of wealth, a new life, accumulation of wealth kind of thing. We, we have overlap here, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And there could be some reputations or problems found in there. Uh, I haven't thought it about it enough, but it, there does seem to be there does seem to there's something there, and I'm interested to I'm interested to see who finds it and what it is if they're willing to talk about it with us. Well, there there definitely is something there, though. I I think that's there's primary. something. It's bothering me. What is it? What is it? What is well, it? That's I, mean, there? I, I, I I think this is the other place we're going to disagree because I think this is really about the accumulation of wealth that one one generation makes that passes to the next upon death. 
this is a resolution. But if you really think about it, well, if you really think about that it, that word intergenerational is literally talking about between peoples, which maybe you're onto something. Like maybe that maybe that isn't just from the dead to the living. Um, it's not. It can't be. Oh, you, I, if you gave me if you gave me twenty bucks. That would be intergenerational accumulation of wealth. You're a different generation than me, and I have accumulated it as a different generation. You, you have transferred capital to me. I don't know that that's true, but I, I, there, there could be there. There's a whole body of literature about generational studies. My dad loves this stuff. Uh, he, 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 for a while was stereotyping millennials like nobody else. It oh was man, crazy. yeah, people love doing that. They do. Okay. Um, Aren't you a millennial? I think so. I don't really I know. I think you are too. I'm pretty sure technically my wife is whatever is right before the millennials. We were debating about this the other day. We're three really? years apart, and I, is that enough to make different generations? I, it gets really that every bizarre. time you buy her something, that's intergenerational accumulation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, oh, and then man. now there's a whole nother. I mean, oh goodness, the the surely people are going to have a lot of fun with uh, figuring out K links on this, but. Who oh, defines an intergenerational – who defines the generations becomes – that does become key to this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I want to recommend five sources for people to consider as they are looking at writing their cases on this. Uh, three of these are – three of these are pretty historical. Uh, two of them are contemporary and hopefully relevant, one to each side. Uh, first historical source – the reigning uh, theoretician of democracy is an 18th century or 19th century Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville. He came in the very early 1800s and visited America, and he wrote a uh, two-volume book uh, called Democracy in America. It's the earliest survey of what does this new democratic experiment mean. So... Uh, if you want kind of the most scholarly, most respectable understanding of democracy, dig into Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, his democracy in America. Uh, secondly, I want to recommend two sources if you uh, if you're at all intrigued by my idea about uh, running a property rights defense. Um, you should look at Russell Kirk and his book, The Conservative Mind, and also Richard Weaver and his book, Ideas Have Consequences. Both of those guys have chapters specifically on property rights. Uh, Russell Kirk ties property rights as one of the six canons of conservatism. And Richard Weaver writes that uh, property rights are really the last bastion of sanity. And it's from property rights that we can rebuild a great society. So, uh, most of our listeners to the show, I suspect, will really, they're really going to hate Russell Kirk and or Richard Weaver, but they have some great stuff on property rights. Uh, lastly, we can't talk about democracy and not talk about G.K. Chesterton's idea of the democracy of the democracy of the dead. Uh, Chesterton has a fascinating line where uh, he actually argues that uh, when he is a Democrat in the sense that he's a fan of democracy, but he is a he wants to consider the living as one group of voters who have to be weighed with all the dead people before them who express their views. So if you are truly a fan of the democracy, you'll consider all people and you won't be prejudiced and privilege the living over the dead. Ooh, that that would make for some interesting arguments. Wouldn't it? I, I would it love really to. Would. Yeah, I'd love to see folks uh, run Chesterton in their cases again. Very unlikely that'll happen, but I think it'd be really fun. OK. Uh, more contemporary and probably a bit more relevant, 
Uh, on the negative side, there is a Heritage Foundation study entitled Poverty and Inequality, Does Rising Income Inequality Threaten Democracy? It's the Heritage Foundation. They're a conservative think tank. They're going to be a great source for the neg. On AF, uh, there is a currently living French economist named Thomas Piketty who has written a tome that I have not read, but uh, I have heard uh, is, is very important and is great for the affirmative side of the case. The guy's name is Thomas Piketty. The book is Capital in the 21st Century. Uh, Thomas Piketty is essentially arguing that we have misunderstood capital for the last 300 years, and what we actually need to do is basically uh, give it to the state and let the state manage capital. Uh, I think it's going to be a very good source for the AF. Uh, could be a great way to look at how capital has created inequality in our democratic system. So, best of luck. Uh, do write in. Let us know what uh, which sources were helpful to you. Oh, yeah. It, like, I'm really looking forward to emails on this one. I really hope you guys write to us because we have the whole framing issue we're disagreeing on. We've got tons of different avenues on AF, definitions of democracy. There's so much to talk about with this resolution. So we would really appreciate if you would email us. We love getting emails. We love getting questions. We love starting conversations, all of that stuff. So if you want to do that, you can email us at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore, or check out our website, which has all of our resources. That's www.whatstheres.com. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.